Lopez at large. I'm Leonard Lopez. The 1968 presidential race was a battle between Vice President Robert Hubert Humphrey, Republican Richard Nixon, and former Alabama Governor George Wallace. It followed the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy and was bitterly divided on the Vietnam War and domestic issues, including civil rights and rising crime. In his latest book, Luke A. Nichter draws upon previously unexamined archives and numerous interviews to provide us with a new understanding of the campaign, the, the year that broke politics, collusion, and chaos in the presidential election of 1968 is published by Yale University Press and brings Luke A. Nichter, professor of history and James H. Kavanaugh Endowed Chair in Presidential Studies at Chapman University to our show now. Welcome. Thanks for having me on. We talked about the Nixon White House tapes nine years ago, so it's great to be back. Well, maybe we'll get together another nine years if I'm still around. (laughs) Um, You begin with a remark that President Johnson made to Everett Dirksen on the eve of the 1968 election. Why begin there? Well, I, so the opening line on the the opening page of the book uh, has to do with whether uh, with treason and, and the conversation, the remark that Johnson made to Dirksen, uh, which has in recent years been uh, the whole campaign has been reduced down in the last five years to what's been known as the Chenault affair mm-hmm. and, and a misunderstanding. I think ultimately, uh, but it's been a been a window into how we've reduced the whole campaign down to that. Issue. Issue. And so I, I you know, I, I take quite a while to, to research the backstory of that and bring readers how we got to that point, as well as an appendix going through that that case specifically. The uh, Chenault affair involved uh, Anna Chenault, who was called the Dragon Lady. Uh, what did that involve? So, you know, it's, it's a complicated story, but the, the basics of it, uh, Washington socialite Anna Chenault, the allegations are that uh, candidate Richard Nixon colluded with Anna Chenault to send a message to South Vietnamese President Nguyen Van Thieu to stay out of the Paris peace talks at a time when the United States desperately hoped to withdraw from the, the unpopular war, the longest war in its history. And the allegations are that therefore, uh, Richard Nixon through Anna Chanel interfered with those peace talks and committed treason according to the Logan Act uh, of the 18th century. So he was accused of trying to sabotage the Paris peace talks between the United States and Vietnam? That, that It's a story that's been on the public record since January of 1969, but has popped up probably more strongly than ever in the last five years uh, after the 2016 presidential election, because those eager or interested to, to know whether uh, Trump had colluded with the Russians to reach the White House, mm-hmm. whether the case of Nixon in South Vietnam was an accurate historical antecedent. So the story got new life. Uh, since 2016. Didn't Billy Graham meet with President Johnson to offer him a deal after the president's attempt to reenter the race was stymied by his own party? How did? Uh, oh, I, I wish I could say I was so brilliant that at the beginning of this book, uh, I, I I knew where I was going in terms of Graham. This is one of the real surprises. Yeah, he's an book. evangelist. How does he get involved in the mix here? 
Well, he, uh, presidents of both sides were interested in, in talking to someone they know who wouldn't leak to the press. Uh, they were sometimes troubled spiritually with what's going on in the nation and the world. And Graham had access to an elite level of politics that's been called the President's Club, you know, by some authors. He was very close to Lyndon Johnson. We often associate him with Richard Nixon, but he was closer to Johnson for, for many years. And he what, what you see, according to his diary, this is the first book to feature excerpts of his diary, is that he was a back channel, a kind of messenger between the central characters in this book. And he said that if Nixon was elected, he would continue Johnson's Vietnam War policy and also not oppose his great society. Wow. Politics. Well, no, that's exactly it. It's, this is shortly after Labor Day in 68, the traditional kickoff of campaigns back then. Uh, it was a multi-point promise in this message that Graham carried from Nixon to Johnson, uh, not to criticize him personally, to give him credit for Vietnam when it was ended, to consult with him in retirement, and to do everything Nixon could do to give Johnson a good place in history. And my takeaway from that is that that's exactly what Johnson wanted to hear at that moment when many in his own party were criticizing him, not just for Vietnam, but also the Great Society. So he asked Johnson to soften his support for Humphrey, and, and Johnson agreed? Well, when his you look at the record— Did they get along? It, well, certainly they did in 64. I think Johnson in 64 at Atlantic City was eager to have Humphrey join the uh, uh, the campaign. Uh, and he was eager to have outreach during the civil rights era to the liberal part of the Democratic Party, which was so vital to passing Civil Rights Act of 64, Voting Rights Act of 65. But what's curious is by 68, I think Johnson and Humphrey, as you see in the book, are barely on speaking terms. So obviously what happens in those four years is very important. Didn't Johnson see a rightward shift of the nation and come to believe that a President Nixon rather than Humphrey would be better for Lyndon Johnson's legacy? That's what I conclude in the book. But, but Johnson, I must say, is a master politician. There's nothing static about Johnson or about the year 1968. And Johnson, like many Americans, is simply reacting to the wave of turbulence you know, uh, th throughout the, the, the era. I think what Johnson sensed was that there was a great political shift on the horizon, that the millions who put him over the top in a landslide over Barry Goldwater in 1965 were really ambivalent about their choices in 68. And, and we know with hindsight that many of those millions uh, put Nixon over the top in a landslide in 72, and many of those became what we call Reagan Democrats. So I think Johnson was a good enough politician going back to the 1930s and the New Deal era to understand something was shifting in America. Well, Nixon won re-election, as you say, in 1972, but then he was brought down by the Watergate scandal. Well, that, that's right. And, and frankly, I think whoever uh, had been elected in 68, whether it was Johnson or Humphrey or Nixon, it would have been a pretty tough time to govern. I mean, the country was stirred up. Uh, you know, they'd gone after Johnson, the Bobby Baker scandal and others as vice president, and they could never quite sink their hooks into him. Uh, and he got away. Uh, but I think whoever would have won, it would not have been an easy job. Well, uh, politics... Uh has obviously changed the way it's conducted a lot in, in, in the last 50 years since. But in the end, it's just as difficult. 
Well, I, I'm not sure anybody uh, who could possibly uh, want that job, I don't think. But but I think when you talk about these details here... I'm just too they, old for it. Otherwise, I would take it. <laughs> well, I think it's 68 still fascinates us. And it fascinates us because, not just because it's probably the arguably the most divisive election in modern U.S. history, but I think it really is the era that most closely resembles our era today. And, and while I don't think we're quite as bad and quite as divided today... You know, we're missing the draft, for example, and thankfully we don't have assassinations like in 68. But I still think there, there are a lot of similarities. But the, but the Democratic Party is, seems fairly united. Uh, why had LBJ's attempt to reenter the race been stymied by his own party? Well, I, I don't know wh- how much Johnson was serious about reentering. There was, there's, and, and let me be clear. There's no doubt there was a draft Johnson movement in Chicago in '68, uh, and another parallel that Democrats are going back to Chicago next year. Um, no question, but there was a movement. The question was how much was Johnson involved in it? You know, I think when Johnson withdrew on live television on March 31st, he saw as his successor Nelson Rockefeller that it would take the good look the money and the brand name of a Rockefeller to defeat Bobby Kennedy, who was then surging uh, in the spring of 68. But after those twin assassinations of King and then Kennedy, basically giving the nomination to Humphrey, you know, what all the Johnson people told me was Johnson believed to be president, you had to have a killer instinct. And he simply didn't believe that Humphrey had a killer instinct. Was his resurgence in October related to his changing position on the war? Well, that's what the most works on 68 have, have said, that it was an election about 68, and that was the issue more than any other that motivated voters that November. But when you look at the polls, Gallup and others, uh, it doesn't really show that, that result. You know, I'll, 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 this is this is what they show. So Vietnam is consistently shown a, a, the largest single concern on American minds that year. But then it breaks out domestic issues, uh, unrest, crime, racial tension, violence, et cetera, into several separate categories. After those two assassinations, King in April, Kennedy in June, when you add up those individual domestic categories, they actually overtake Vietnam, and it remains that way until November. So my take is different, that actually Americans were more more motivated by domestic issues once both Nixon and Humphrey, in each their own way, agreed we needed to resolve and get out of Vietnam. So Humphrey's resurgence in October wasn't related to his changing position on the war? I think the poll data shows that. And also uh, one of his key strategists, uh, Vic Fingerhut, who was working on his first campaign advising Humphrey, uh, told me exactly that when I talked to him. He said our strategy with Humphrey was stop talking about Vietnam, concede foreign policy to the Republicans, which is normally their strength, and start talking about Democratic bread and butter, FDR New Deal, Truman Fair Deal, Democratic prosperity, jobs, economy, education, Social Security, and Humphrey changes to those in mid-October. Uh, the AFCIO, AFL-CIO gets the union vote out, what draws millions of voters away from Wallace back into their home camp of Humphrey and the Democratic Party. And I, I, I argue that, that is the real shift and the explanation for the outcome. What was Nixon's Southern strategy? You say it's been misunderstood. Well, you know, so you can anybody can Google, you know, Nixon's Southern strategy. 
And when you look at it, though, under a microscope, there's really not of evidence for a kind of cynical race based Southern strategy. And, you know, by that, I mean, you know, if you show me a candidate who, who doesn't have a strategy for the South, I'll probably show you the losing candidate. And, and don't forget, Wallace was in this campaign uh, and Wallace controlled all of the Deep South. I think in a two man race, Humphrey and Nixon, it would have been a very different situation because both would have had to have campaigned for votes in the South. But with Wallace in the race, both Humphrey and Nixon largely didn't campaign in the Deep South, conceded the more race-based uh, voters all to Wallace and, and avoided debating him and competing head-to-head -head with him at all. Uh, I, in a nutshell, I think Nixon's strategy in the South was really, if you look at those red and blue maps of Eisenhower-Nixon in 52 and 56, they began to peel away the border states. They won Virginia twice. They won Louisiana in 1956. And I think that was Nixon's basic strategy in 68, is to regain that, that Eisenhower-Nixon territory. He might have got Texas, too, without LBJ, uh, so prominent in 68. But, I, but I, that's why I, that's, these are the reasons why I think it's been misunderstood. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Luke A. Nichter. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Absolutely. The book, The Year That Broke Politics, Collusion and Chaos in the Presidential Election of 1968 from Yale University Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. We don't always see third party candidates, but Wallace obviously was an important factor in this race. Well, you know, I would say it's once a generation that we have a third party candidate who there's really makes a difference. Just talk about having one again now, although and if it does, that would really um, change the whole dynamic of this upcoming election. It sure would. We haven't seen one like this, I guess, since maybe Ross Perot, uh, 92, 96, uh, Bernie Sanders, maybe in 2016. But think about this. You know, I, I always joke, you know, there, there's very few issues that unite both parties today, perhaps concern about China or social media companies. But another one is third party challengers. Uh, if you want to make enemies of both parties, it try to run as a third party candidate. And I'm still trying to figure out whether Robert Kennedy is a serious candidate or not, like everybody else. But George Wallace managed to navigate the state laws in all 50 states and get on the ballot everywhere except the District of Columbia, which is a remarkable feat, and was polling almost as high as Hubert Humphrey into the fall of 1968, ultimately winning 10 million votes. It's remarkable when you consider earlier in that decade, he was an overt segregationist who made racist comments like segregation today, tomorrow and forever, who had sort of transformed himself by 68, as I say in the book, kind of like a Huey Long inspired kind of Southern uh, demagogue, you know, populist, kind of a mix of all these things. Well, he represented a change in the Democratic Party. Uh, the Democratic Party was moving away from the Dixiecrat positions. Uh, so he wound up being the embodiment of those, right? Well, I, I think I agree with all that. He was, in addition, I would say, also very sort of anti-elite, anti-establishment. Um, and you look at sort of all candidates since then, uh, Democrat or Republican, I would say more frequently on the Republican side of the aisle. And I think they've all borrowed from the Wallace playbook, that rhetoric, that kind of anti-elite, anti-media at times. Wallace didn't say drain the swamp, but he might as well have.
And uh, you describe Wallace's, quote, the living embodiment of resistance to social change and say he appealed to voters who feared unrest and rising crime. Do you see his appeal as anticipating today's Republican populism? Oh, I, you know, it's it's not unique to Republicans, although I think it's it's home is more fully on that side of the aisle these days. Uh, but I think even the choice of uh, Agnew on the Nixon ticket was a Agnew was kind of a, a populist Rockefeller Republican who spoke out strongly, you know, after uh, the violence, after the King assassination, especially in cities like Baltimore, and since he was governor of Maryland. Um, and so even the choice of Agnew was to kind of bring a little bit of the anti-establishment into an otherwise establishment campaign. And I think all all successful politicians have, have done that since, uh, especially recently where, you know, you look at the rhetoric of Trump, who his supporters are, and I think you can draw a lot of, you know, lines back to Wallace. Well, although Wallace had been a Democrat, didn't he think he'd win the states that Goldwater had won in 1964? Well, Wallace is an evolution, which is fascinating. Uh, 64 gave him his first taste of national politics. And he's, as he developed those aspirations, he entered three Democratic primaries outside of the South to test his popularity, and he liked what he saw. So he came back in 68, kind of his first full-bore national campaign. And of course, he had to modify his appeal and his rhetoric beyond just Alabamians. Uh, and so so Wallace was much more of a, I would call him kind of a populist, conservative demagogue in his 1968 form. Did his critics miss the mark when they focus on his racist origins? Well, I think he was such a surprise. And, and so he, the, the, the mistake was to underestimate him. Uh, it's not a popular thing to say then or, or even more recently. Uh, but I think people underestimated uh, Wallace's ability as a campaigner and, and more recently have underestimated Trump's abilities as a campaigner and the, can the connections that he has made with his supporters. Did Wallace have much support outside of the South? Oh, he's he, well, in, in absolute terms, uh, not head to head uh, with Nixon or, or Humphrey at that level, but consistently surpassed expectations in, in Wisconsin, uh, in, in Michigan, in, in, in Orange County, California, in Anaheim, outside of Los Angeles, he held rallies. So I would say not states as a whole, but pockets within states and suburbs that are very sort of white, uh, blue collar, lower middle class. Uh, the message of Wallace was that he was the only one who heard your concerns. But wasn't his call for law and order seen by many as thinly veiled racism? Well, I think certainly race was folded into that. And earlier in the decade, his appeals were more overtly about race. But many people assigned to his campaign, you know, would, would fly down from Manhattan and cover a speech and fly back. And they were surprised to not hear any racist language or overt calls. So I think for those who that was a motivation for how you voted, you, were, you already knew Wallace was your guy and you didn't need to hear it again. But by 68, I think Wallace had a more sophisticated message. Race was still there, but it was folded into uh, a, a broader set of grievances that I would 
would call kind of anti-elite or anti-establishment. The idea that civil rights had gone too far too quickly. Well, how relevant to his campaign were the anti-war and black power protests and the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy? Well, I, I, th I think, uh, if anything, uh, th those events uh, helped to propel Wallace, helped to show that what he was saying was relevant and gave him a broader reach. Uh, I think Wallace in, uh, himself relished in acts of violence at campaign rallies. Uh, he liked to make a spectacle of it. He liked to sh show people, you know, fresh examples of why he was in the race uh, and, and that, you know, there was a part of the electorate, uh, you know, no one else was speaking to who, who you know, his, their concern were in the mainstream and legitimate. So I think Wallace did serve a need, you know, for those 10 million voters. And didn't the poll show that he received high marks for saying it like it really is and for having the courage of his convictions? <laughs> Well, surprisingly, I mean, those were mainstream Gallup polls that even people who it's a, I, I get it. I don't think I use the name Trump a single time in the book, but I think even with Trump, while many people don't like his policies, I think he does get higher marks for saying things that other people thought or for saying what he really thinks. And I think the polls from 1968 show that more people agreed that Wallace did those things, too, even if they had no plans to vote for. Actually, you do mention Trump once in the book, but we won't uh, <laughs> at the very, near the very end. Um, now, you say that Wallace turned out has turned out to be a model for every conservative who has run for the presidency since 1968. So are we continuing to see that legacy uh, in, in the, the, the debates of today? Oh, I think absolutely. I, I mean, the, the sort of white labor, um, uh, blue collar, lower middle class. Um, you know, I, that's kind of the the family, the kind of the family that I grew up in, in kind of industrial Northwest Ohio. Um, it, those were strong Democratic voters, and the last Democratic president to win them as a voting block, you know, was arguably Lyndon Johnson in 1964. Uh, some of them came back home to Humphrey in '68, but you know, Democrats have struggled with this ever since, and, and Republicans. It, it's awkward for them. I mean, here we have a so-called populist billionaire uh, who's on their side now and Donald Trump. But since but Republicans have gone after them once those votes uh, were seen to be in play beginning in 1968. And states like Ohio, which were solidly blue states, are now uh, have now moved over to the red side. Well, and, and I'm a Buckeye, you know, I, uh, and, you know, Ohio was the bellwether. You, uh, Ohio was considered a purple state. It went for Nixon in 60, but ever since then, it votes on the right, you know, but the side of the winner. And now twice it's gone for Trump by a margin of 8%. And so I'm not sure what my home state is anymore. <laughs> how, how do you explain that, considering the fact that it has a lot of large cities and a fairly large African-American population. 
Well, and Ohio's changing because it used to be the industrial Cleveland, Cincinnati, and Toledo, and Youngstown, and Dayton, and now Columbus has emerged as bigger. In Columbus, the demographics are very different, as you say. So I think that's that's probably we're in the midst of another change that we just can't see yet because we don't have the right perspective. But I think in this case, I would probably credit, you know, Trump worked awfully hard uh, for Ohio, perhaps harder for Ohio than any other state. And while it didn't pay dividends in some of his other states this last time around, uh, it, it, you know, he, he did he, he did spend time in Ohio and that one paid off for him. And with factories closing down, there's a smaller blue collar vote. Well, and, and this is the odd part of the electorate. This is where I say it's not a two-dimensional uh, electorate. It's three-dimensional. And you get kind of that Bernie Sanders populism and Trump populism. And it's an unusual part of the electorate that almost kind of wraps around the right and left and it touches in the back. It's kind of that, that you know, jobs have gone to China. Uh, our factories have closed. It's kind of an anti-capitalist, uh, anti-free trade, protectionist idea. And so, you know, they say politics makes strange bedfellows, but I think there was some crossover between Sanders and Trump. Yeah, well, but Sanders doesn't have a, a chance for a number of reasons, partly because he's Jewish, because of his accent, because he's old, because, I don't know, he just, he just doesn't seem to be middle American enough. I think when Sanders, Bernie Sanders is no longer on the political scene, we will lose something great. <laughs> um, I think he has added so much ritually uh, to our political system. Uh, but I agree. I think uh, uh, even at his young age, <laughs> compared to some of our other politicians, um, yeah, I, I, I don't see how he has a future. How do you explain LBJ's tepid support for, for Hubert Humphrey, who was his vice president? Well, I, I mean, this is, I say. Well, certainly in 64, they did. I mean, I mean they were very different people. Uh, and by 68, the calculus was very different. At a certain point, an outgoing president shifts from policy to legacy. And, you know, I think there's something to be said for the idea that it's, it's often better as an outgoing president to be succeeded by a moderate member of the other party because you expect to be attacked by the other party. And when you do, your own party comes to your defense. But in Humphrey's case, uh, more so than Humphrey, but some of those advising Humphrey, Averill Harriman, uh, George Ball, and others were promising to get out of the war within six months. And they were promising to, have, uh, to, to do the Great Society, except even better. And so I think Johnson simply read the cards and thought, I'm going to get blamed for being the first president to lose a war, and I'm going to be forgotten when the Humphrey people do the Great Society even better than I did. And so I think for that reason, you know, he saw Nixon as a better successor. Meanwhile, the uh, Paris negotiations to end the American military involvement in Vietnam were taking place, right? They began well, it, May and 13, I think. Well, I, 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 I give credit to Johnson here because I think there's one element of his legacy, Vietnam, uh, that he knew was weak compared to his domestic policy. And I think Johnson desperately wanted to be viewed as a peacemaker by the end of his presidential term. And so while I think he didn't have high hopes for any great breakthroughs in the talks that began in Paris in May of 1968, I think he did hope to at least get credit for getting the process started and leaving his successor, whoever that might be in a better position than they would have been otherwise. 
Well, right now, U.S. relations with Vietnam are kind of complicated, but I don't see any of these people being blamed for the situation. Well, no, I mean, look, I was born in the late 1970s and, and relations between uh, the United States and Vietnam have never been better. You know, I, I, I'm treated uh, whenever I go to Vietnam for research for books. It's one of the friendliest countries I've ever been to, including Western Europe. It's a wonderful time to go to Vietnam to understand North, more about America. North and South or just- North and South. Absolutely. But but it's hard to know how much of that is simply because of our shared concern, U.S. and Vietnamese, for China. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Ho, uh, Ho Chi Minh famously said something about American occupation that's probably not friendly for, uh, for radio. But, you know, it's easier to live with a few decades of Americans than 2,000 years of Chinese on their northern, long northern border. And so I think we're, I, I, it's hard for me to tell how much of this is simply because of a mutual antagonism toward, uh, toward China, but Vietnam is extremely friendly. They've put the war behind them, and it's all positive and forward-looking right now. You're listening to London Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Results for all your labor, send them for America in 68. You're living in a restless generation. There's discontent and fighting everywhere. We need a real strong man to run this nation. So it's up to you. And me to put George there. Let's put George Wallace in the White House. Let's let him get those judges by the tail. Let's put that tiger in the White House. So come on, all you friends and neighbors, get results for all your labor. Stand up. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Luke A. Nichter. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, his book, The Year That Broke Politics. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2 WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 or more donation in the name of London Lopate at large, and we thank you very much. And return now to Luke A. Nichter, his latest book from Yale University Press, The Year That Broke Politics, Collusion, and Chaos in the Presidential Election of 1968. Um, This is... um, one of a number of books he's written on history. He's also the author of The Last Brahmin, Henry Cabot Lodge Jr., and The Making of the Cold War. Do you see, uh, how much of this do you see as an outgrowth of the Cold War? Well, certainly there were Cold War issues. Uh, you know, you can, it's, there are certain parallels of this time period that, that, you know, for example, the Russians invaded Czechoslovakia, a sovereign neighbor, neighboring state. The Russians and Chinese are, are making noise on the international scene in 1968. Uh, so certainly there are sort of Cold War issues. The Vietnam War itself which was tearing the nation apart in 1968, was also a kind of a Cold War, a proxy war, as they sometimes say. So certainly the 
those issues are there. I think it's also the fact is, but it was more than them. It was kind of the younger generation versus the old. It was all kind of the youth movements. It was kind of the beginning of LGBT movements. It was what was then called women's lib. So, so yes, I think the country was stirred up by Cold War issues, but also I think there was something much bigger and generational going on. Were issues like LGBT important in that election? Not not decisive, nor really even women. I mean, I mean, the votes of women kind of gradually ever since suffrage. Uh, of course, Stonewall doesn't happen for a couple more years. So abortion uh, was not an issue either. Right. It, it, and, and I would say not really race or, or civil rights all that much. Uh, so I would say none of the these are all all of these exist kind of in the background. But I think more prominently, it, it's violence, it's unrest, it's the war. It's just the fact the country is stirred up and neither party the, of the political establishment seem to have the answers. I mean, that's one of the takeaways you get, even with the election of Nixon, is that the voters in, in, in either party don't really seem happy with their with their options. Well, they seem to be happy enough with Nixon for four years because they reelected him. Well, I think once Nixon could be reelected and become free, you know, I think sometimes we assume that presidents all begin at the same starting line. You know, they're dealt a deck of cards of 52 that we measure their success in the first hundred days. So we have the same yardstick. But that's not always true. I mean, Nixon inherited a hand of cards, which are not only the ones he would not have chosen. They were very unfavorable to any president with the war and the unrest at home. And I think it was only after he could begin to move beyond those and work on his own issues. In a lot of ways, Nixon's presidency is a continuation of LBJ's uh, going to China and doing things that made him look presidential. I think that's what helped him to get reelected, getting beyond the issues that he inherited. You've interviewed 85 key individuals for this book. Um, who were the, some of the most forthcoming? Well, some of them had never had told me they never spoke to anyone. Um, uh, for example, we, we started the interview with Anna Chenault. Mm -hmm. uh, all of the people who've written about the Chenault affair have one thing in common. They never interviewed Anna Chenault. And so uh, she was one. Why do you think that is? Because she was such, I mean, she was a mysterious woman they called the Dragon Lady. You would have thought they'd wanted to talk to her. You sure? What? Look, I'm a historian. Uh, my training is to look at dusty records and archives. I have no idea what I'm doing when I do interviews. Uh, so you certainly think that would be the case. Or to talk to the South Vietnamese. The ambassador to Washington at that time, a key figure, Boyd Ziem, uh, in the Chenault Affair, was alive, living uh, just outside of Washington up until two years ago when he died. So, so many people who've written about this time period, uh, I would argue, really, when you look at the footnotes, uh, really didn't do their homework. It's surprising. You know, 50 years is normally a long enough time for their a revisionism to take hold. Records are declassified. People leave the scene and leave behind diaries like Billy Graham. And we have a fresh, more dispassionate look at a subject. The, this history has been surprisingly resilient when you look compare the first draft to books uh, that have appeared only very recently, I think that's why I think I, my take on it looks so different. And why do you think that is? Uh, because uh, there are any number of major surprises here. You would have thought they would have come out by now. 
I think that human beings are human beings and we sort of decide what we want and we get comfortable with that. And once the conventional wisdom sets in, uh, it's it's awfully hard to change that. I mean, that's why we have new books that come out about the Civil War and much older topics than 1968. And it's like, wow, you know, we, we didn't think about it. And sometimes the evidence is hiding in plain sight and we just didn't want to see it. Uh, didn't you receive a National Endowment for the Humanities Fellowship in support of this book? What did they hope you might reveal? Yeah, so the NEH uh, provided some support for this book. They have a number of book, uh, kind of a year-long um, people, you know, book projects, book awards that help to defray the costs and research. And so, um, you know, I, again, I, I wish I was brilliant enough to know all these conclusions when I applied for the grant. I guess they thought enough of it as it was, but they help, you know, a book like this. You know, I, I've traveled 100 nights a year for 10 years to archives and historic sites. Uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's expensive to write th thoroughly researched history books, um, very time consuming. And so, you know, you know, NEH grant programs like that are, are essential, I think, to having really good history books, because as I say in the book, unfortunately, a lot of what passes for history these days is often not rigorously researched. And I think, you know, readers should demand more. Are the archives available to anyone who wants to look into them? For the most part, um, you know, most of these so records. In theory, uh, I could write a book about this. Absolutely. You could go to the National Archives. We are all stakeholders in our democratic system. We all have rights to submit Freedom of Information Act requests, search cards to go to the National Archives, any libraries, which are part of the National Archives. A few records like Billy Graham's diaries are private, mm. and those are still controlled by the Graham's in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I had to get permission because they consider those copyrighted. But the vast majority of these records, Johnson White House tapes, Nixon White House tapes, belong to you, to me, and every American, and you're free to use them however you want. How close were Anna Chenault and uh, Richard Nixon? Well, the, the evidence, looking at Chenault's papers, especially, which are up at Harvard, um, showed to me that she would occasionally write, and she usually didn't get a response, or it might have been a form letter. Um, my, you know, my deep dive into Chenault and talking to her, her daughter and, and to Chenault herself is she was really a Southern Democrat. You know, her, her, her general, General Chenault, her, her former husband, deceased in 1960, in the late 50s, she was really, he was from Louisiana. And so I think to the, she was Chinese, uh, of Chinese. And so to the extent she had any politics at all in this country, I think she sort of inherited uh, his Southern Democratic uh, tradition from Louisiana. She she was she got a Kennedy presidential appointment. She was thrilled by the election of Kennedy. And I think she became such an influential socialite. Um, her longtime companion, Tommy, uh, Tom Corcoran in Washington, they became kind of this first power couple. And I think she, she really was more interested in her business connections with the Flying Tigers Airways and the money she was making on the Vietnam War, that I think she supported whichever politician who was, the, who was a Cold War hawk. She's a strong supporter of, of, of Johnson, of Humphrey, and only began to waver on their support and shift to the Nixon column when they started talking about getting out of Vietnam. My guest on today's Leonard Lopit at Large is Luke A. Nichter. His latest book, The Year That Broke Politics, Collusion and Chaos in the Presidential Election of 1968, is published by Yale University Press. So how close was the election? 
Well, it depends how you look at it. Certainly, in terms of the popular vote, we're talking about a half million votes. Uh, very, very close, about a half percent. And, and these days, every election we have is, is close, or sometimes uh, the, the loser wins the popular vote. Um, if you look at the Electoral College, it's a little more decisive. As, we, like, as we saw in the last, with the Trump election, he did not get the majority vote, but he got the Electoral College. Exactly. Uh, and the Electoral College is a little more decisive. Uh, yeah, it's something like 301 or 303 to 191. So Nixon to Humphrey with Wallace at 46 or something like that. So if you combine, if you combine Nixon and Wallace is kind of an anti- you know, LBJ vote or anti-establishment of the 1960s, it looks a little more decisive. But obviously, you know, and, and I, I would argue that in the states that were critical for Humphrey to win, they weren't that close. But overall, it looked very close. I don't think the voters in either party were thrilled about their options. And whoever was going to be president was going to inherit an enormously divided country. So how close was the election? Do you, do, well, do you think that it has turned out to be one of the key moments in American history? Well, I, I, as I say, we were at the beginning of, I think, a great political shift. And, and you know, Humphrey won uh, far fewer voters than Lyndon Johnson did in 64, despite the fact the country had grown and passed 200 million people by 1968. So you had a lot of people who had dropped out of politics, who weren't sure where they belonged in politics anymore. And I think there was a beginning of this movement, you know, that Johnson ultimately anticipated. Uh, as, you, as you pointed out before, I think Democrats, Southern Democrats, conservative Democrats were beginning to shift. The first prominent one was probably uh, Strom Thurmond, you know, back in 64 after civil rights. And so I think what started as a kind of protest in response to civil rights progress uh, turned into something broader, a kind of anti-elite, anti-establishment shift. And I think that's one of the threads that you can see in politics today. Well, we can only guess at what it would have been like if Hubert Humphrey had won instead of Nixon. Very different well, kinds of people. Uh, but Humphrey w was part of the problem that Humphrey just wasn't getting the support of Johnson that he that he might have gotten uh, from another president. I think Humphrey faced an impossible task. And I tell my students when I teach political history, anytime you have an election where you have a sitting vice president or someone very close to the outgoing president run, that's the campaign to watch because they have an impossible task. Nixon did this in 60 with Eisenhower still in the White House. Because if you're a sitting vice president, you have the awkward task of saying, these are all the great things to do, We're gonna, we plan to do. Of course, the cynic says, well, if, if they're so great, why didn't you do them the last four years or eight years? So you have to argue that both everything you did was great, but somehow still incomplete, while also organizing around meaningful themes that don't antagonize the sitting president. I remember even Al Gore in 2000. Clinton was an asset that could be mobilized in some parts of the country, but certainly not in others. And even Hillary Clinton, while she wasn't vice president, had been very close, a prominent figure of the Obama administration 
Secretary of State, I think never quite figured out where do you mobilize President Obama, who's enormously popular in some areas and not others. And so I think that's the challenge to watch. So Nixon, I think, had a leg up on that because he knew how difficult that was, having done that in 60 and losing. And now Humphrey, who was, who was ready to be on the ticket as, as Johnson's vice president in 68, never imagined he would be the nominee that year, I think right from the beginning had the difficulty to organize a meaningful campaign. Do you think Biden had an advantage in that there was a four-year hiatus between when he was vice president and when he ran for president? I think that's it. And his personality obviously was, was different. Um, he had a long political career, you know, that going back to 19, the early 1970s uh, that Obama didn't have. So I think he was different enough and the break. That's why sometimes it's nice for your legacy to be succeeded by succeeded by the the other party, because it kind of ends that chapter and then gave Biden a fresh start. Now, you've called your book the year that broke politics. What do you mean by that? Well, look at our system today. I think a lot of people today on both sides of the aisle would say the political system is broken. And 68, I think, is one of those years, uh, not exclusive to 1968, uh, that, that also the political system was broken. But aren't and the I differences between the two parties today quite obvious, a lot more than they were then? I would say the official parties, but I think I still, you know, back then in 68, uh, Nick, you know, in 69, Nixon gave probably the most famous speech of his entire presidents, the silent majority speech. Mm -hmm. And I still think there's a kind of silent majority uh, today. I think I think the average people, people treat each other on social media, strangers far worse than they would in person, their neighbors in their neighborhood who probably vote differently than they do. So I, I, I do think you're right. The political parties, uh, but you compare the political parties to European political parties and other kind of true left parties or conservative parties in Eastern Europe. And really, our parties have to be that way, because I think a lot of times they're, they're not as different as parties are in other parties. It's really kind of a center-right party and a center-left party. We don't really have a conservative party, I don't think, or a true liberal party. And so I think they have to emphasize their differences. But I don't know that most Americans around kind of the big center of politics are really that different. So you don't think the Republican Party today has become rather more conservative than it's been in the past? I think it's become conservative. There are people even talking about it becoming an autocracy. I think that's the, this is this is what we're talking about because it's tied to a personality of Donald Trump, who who won't be on the scene forever. Uh, and so there's certainly an ebb and a flow. These are not a, it's not a linear uh, evolution in, in either party. So I think when Trump leaves the scene and, and he will, you know, in a matter of time, he's not a young man. Uh, then, you know, I think the Republicans will be eager to talk about what's next. But it is interesting that Nixon was brought down by Watergate and Trump is not being brought down by all of these indictments. Well, there's no evidence that Trump said that Nixon said uh, to destroy the evidence. I think a lot of people advised Nixon to destroy his tapes. And I think before they were subpoenaed, he legally could have done that, maybe, um, although it would have looked pretty bad given Watergate. Uh, but in this case, you know, if evidence surfaces that Trump actually ordered the destruction or modification of, say, Mar-a-Lago surveillance uh, video, that, that's a whole nother matter. So we have an, another 
well, five minutes or so left. What are some of the things you'd like to add? Well, you know, I, I think what's what's the, the what's really different. There's no shortage of books, you know, about the 1960s. I think the thing that probably makes this one the most different is is the new evidence in it. In particular, the the the, the first part of the Graham Diary. You know, the, I think the Graham Diary is this unique window into what some have called the President's Club. You know, this idea. Despite uh, you know public political differences, those who have held what's been called the loneliest job in the world come to realize in private that they actually need each other, and that only when you've been president can you appreciate others who served in that role. And so, what you see in this book, whether it's with Johnson, Nixon, California Governor Reagan, or Graham checking in with Wallace, Graham telling John Connolly, not to, Texas Governor John Connolly, not to join the Humphrey ticket in Chicago, because if you don't, the, the Nixon presidency will offer you a cabinet appointment. I think this kind of new evidence really makes us rethink what we thought we already knew. And Graham had access to this elite world and served as a messenger. And I don't know whether there's people today, I wonder whether there are, you know, who operate in a similar capacity, but it's just fascinating. And I think fundamentally, it's, a, it's, it's really a lesson about the essence of history itself, that just when we think we have it figured out, you know, here comes this new evidence, which is which forces us to, to rethink everything. And so that's really my goal with this book. It's not the final word. Certainly more evidence will come out. I feel as though I've sort of carried the ball down the field 10 yards. Uh, but my goal really is to start a conversation about history. And here we are 55 years later, talking about 1968. I hope it doesn't take 55 years to figure out our own current era today. Uh, but, but I think it's a, a lesson to uh, listeners about what history is, to keep an open-minded, and that even as you, you scroll down your news feeds each, do, each day as I do, there's an awful lot that we don't know that's going on behind the scenes. But you say there's a lot of new evidence. We're talking about 55 years. Is it a matter of people just not looking at the the old evidence or not realizing its importance? Or has stuff just become available recently? It's a combination of all those things. Sometimes it's, it's not looking. Sometimes it's seeing it in a new light. Uh, you know, without uh, context, you know, with different context, you see old evidence in different ways. Some of it is based on hundreds of uh, Freedom of Information Act requests that I put into federal agencies and that have produced new records. Some of it is uh, that Billy Graham died at age 99 in 2018 and has provisions in his will to gradually open his personal papers, including his diaries, which he called his VIP notebooks. Um, and, you know, these people are going to be, these are going to spawn all kinds of new books. You know, the Graham Diary, just to return to that for a moment, um, is more than 50 volumes documenting contact with presidents, beginning with Harry Truman in 1950, all the way to Barack Obama in 2014, as well as contact with 50 foreign heads of state. And so all kinds of books will be written about this content, uh, conversations with presidents that, that are not at the National Archives. They're not in presidential libraries. Uh, and so to me, as a historian, this is kind of a rich tapestry that's going to force us to reconsider a, a big period of U.S. history. I've been speaking with Luke A. Nichter, professor of history and James H. Kavanaugh, endowed chair in presidential studies at Chapman University about his latest book. The Year That Broke Politics, Collusion and Chaos in the Presidential Election of 1968, published by Yale University Press. Anything you want to add? 
I would leave, you know, in, in a dystopian year of 1968, it's easy to look that we're in a dystopian era uh, again today. And I think still, I would say there's a, a message of optimism for those who lived through 1968, who thought the world was falling apart and the sky was falling. I think it's ultimately a message that, that we're going to get through even today. We're going to get through this. We're going to come together and be stronger as an American people. So I think there's a message here, too that if we can survive the 60s, we can survive our current era. This this too shall pass. As a talk show host, I uh, focus on the fact that the world is falling apart every day. <laughs> so, well, is that you've, had, you've, and you've had a very good career. <laughs> so is that just the nature of history, that uh, there's always some crisis and some, some problem and something that we're not going to really understand for a while? There's always a crisis, and presidents are always presidents during different crises, um, political, economic, social, cultural, military, foreign policy. I think all those boxes were checked. Call it the Johnson-Nixon era. All those boxes I would check today during the Trump-Biden era. I think what what what, what we try to do is try to understand these crises. And, and I, I don't think history necessarily repeats itself, but I think the lessons of the past help to illuminate the present and show us that we too, you know, we don't have to be defined by these crises. We can't, we, you know, we, even though we're, we're tomorrow, we'll bring a fresh crisis. We can get beyond today's. Professor Nickter, thank you so much for talking with us today. The book again, the year that broke politics, collusion and chaos in the presidential election of 1968 from Yale University Press. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program, would like to hear more of our one hour deep dive interviews. You can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. That's L-O-P-A-T-E. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And keep the station coming to you. We're going through a rather rough time now financially. Uh, a lot of public broadcasters are, but BAI is really holding on by just a thin thread. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling us at 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give in the number 2 WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopez at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, The Year That Broke Politics by Louis A. Nifter. So why not make that call right now? 212 2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for $5, $10, $15, $20 a month, which allows us to plan for the future um, and allows us to be completely free speech radio. So, again, support the only station, the New York Radio Dollar, 100% listener sponsored with your tax deductible support. 
by calling us at 212-209-2950 or going online to give to WBAI.org. And I hope you can join us again tomorrow when Christopher Miller will discuss his new book, The War Came to Us. We'll see you then.